We watch some. It's TV. We watch screens at home. It's movies. It's TVs. It's limited series. Uh, I guess we're all at home now, so you're watching it on a television. So it's all TV. Though one of the things we're talking about is a movie. I don't know why I care about this right now. I guess there. All the things we watched this for this show, which is the new High Fidelity um, adaptation that was on Hulu, the Little Fires Everywhere adaptation on Hulu, and then Enola Holmes on Netflix. We have a movie, one thing that's only a movie, one thing that's only a TV show, and one thing that's been both a movie and a TV show, and they've all been books, which is the common thread throughout. I've only read one of these books. I don't know if I, we talked about this at all. I've only read the original High Fidelity. It's been a billion years um oh. so i i don't i don't think i read little fires everywhere i th- we I can talk about what i get there and i haven't read the enola holmes um middle grade series though i think my family and i are probably going to saddle up and get through some of that over the winter here because um, we had a good experience as a family together rebecca what's your what, what are your priors coming into having watched any of these um i Read Little Fires Everywhere, but in Galley before it came out. So it's been a while. So it's been a while. I was on, mm, I, re- I remember reading it on a trip, I think in the fall of 2017. Mm. So it's been a while. And I like notoriously am terrible at remembering details of books after a couple of years. Yeah. So like I remembered that it had, you know, this mystery component to it. But by the time I watched the TV show, I had forgotten <laughs> what the answer to the mystery mm. was. Um, I have not read Enola Holmes. I'm not sure I've even ever read a Sherlock Holmes story. Well, that's interesting. Okay. And High Fidelity, I went through a Nick Hornby phase in college, but I didn't, High Fidelity was not one that I remember May not have been reading. out yet. Maybe while you're still in college, uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, I mean, I was you're in college in the... No, I was in college in the early 2000s. Um, the movie came out when I was a senior in high school. Right, okay, there you go. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't read the book. I have seen, like, snippets of the movie, or at least, like, the most popular clips, but I just watched the original High Fidelity movie over the weekend. Um, so my first exposure to High Fidelity was the Zoe Kravitz Hulu series. Yeah. High Fidelity, the novel, came out in 1995, so right, to, right in my peak high school, mm. though I don't think I was reading Hornby Front List. At that particular time, um, okay. So I'm not. We we were saying like, how should we proceed? Let's save it for the show for discussions. How to proceed? How would you like to proceed? Do you want to go? Uh, do you want to do an FMK situation with these? Do you want to do a you know rank order, ascending, descending, sort the table up or down? How do you want to do it, Rebecca? What do you think is most? Or how about this? Which one are you find yourself wanting to talk about the most? Is that an interesting way oh, of going about this? That is interesting. Um... I liked them all, okay. which I kind of wish that I hadn't because it was in, <laughs> that that's more of a hook of like, let's right. dig into what, what doesn't work about this thing. Or like when we at least disagreed about mm-hmm. Dickinson the last time around, um, you know, high fidelity, I think, is a really interesting experiment yeah. in adapting. Readaptation, right? Good. Yeah. Good. So right. let's let's start there. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So 
A, a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Um, Michelle, so this is the... The only one of these I wouldn't have probably gotten to without doing the show is Little Fires Everywhere, and we'll get to that when we get what, why that might be in a little bit. Michelle and I blitzed through High Fidelity a few months ago, three years ago. I don't know when it was, but since <laughs> it came out on Hulu, and we had a lazy Saturday, Friday night, Saturday to ourselves, and we sort of plow through them as you do with these sorts of things when you get yeah. into the groove with something like this. Um you know, notable changes around. We have a gender and race bent main character, um, Zoe Kravitz from John Cusack from the white dude um, of the original book. Um, we're moving to Brooklyn, or excuse me, yeah, the the East Village, yeah. I th- Brooklyn and East Village. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure where Championship Vinyl is um, in the in the TV show new adaptation from Chicago. And the Chicago, of course, has moved from London, where the book is set. Um, we get some moving arounds with the Jack Black character becomes a black woman. Um, and then we get some other sundry pieces put in, stretched out. Of course, I guess mainly the, the biggest difference, we get a lot more time with these characters here um, over the course of say, eight episodes, I think, something like that. Yeah, I think it's eight. Now, I have to admit, I'm a huge fan of the original. It came out at just the right time as a snobby literary kid for me. <laughs> Um, I can, you know the, the biggest difference for me from going from the movie to the 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 miniseries is kind of the status of vinyl in the culture. Weirdly, whereas when mm. the fir- when the movie came out, vinyl was very uncool. Whereas even as it's portrayed in the miniseries, vinyl's kind of cool again. It's like a thing, and there's business models around it. Like the championship vinyl of the John Cusack version is a real backwater hole, right? Like this is a really <laughs> low piece of real estate and business model, whereas the Zoe Kravitz has a kind of a hip little business, which is interesting as a way of, of thinking about it, too. I think Kravitz herself is cooler than Cusack. She plays it much cooler. I think she herself is cu- cooler than Cusack, mm-hmm. who plays it more of a of a manic alpha nerd, you know, one of these kinds of guys, um, which is its <laughs> yeah. own kind of beta, in a way, to use the parlance of romance inelegantly, I think. 
Um, and I'd say I liked the I liked the miniseries. I liked hanging out in New York. It's all shot on set. It's it's a beautiful or shot on, shot on the streets. A lot of it is at least. It's really beautiful. Um, the secondary character, so the the three characters of the shop. Um, the real glow up was for the I can't remember the character's name. I had him in front of me. Now I've I've navigated away to look up when High Fidelity was published. But there's the kind of the shrimpy white dude who. I don't think in the movie you've seen it more recently than I is is mm-hmm. shaded as gay in that context, whereas in the miniseries, I think some of the most moving stuff is about his romance and backstory and everything else like mm-hmm. that. So we get a lot more fleshed out around that. I thought it was a chiller mood than the movie, um, and I liked it less, but I still like. I guess where I, that's where I ultimately came down on it, Rebecca. What was your experience of both of them? You saw it in the opposite trajectory, so I'd be curious yeah. about how that reading is for you. You know, I really enjoyed this series when I watched it. And it was I went into it, of course, you know, not I didn't have anything to compare it to. Um, But I've worked in retail situations where the thing happens where that the line they carry through from the movie to the show is like, I hired them to work here part time, and they just started showing up (laughs) every day. And that was three years ago. Um, And I've like, I've certainly been in situations that are similar to that and known some people like that. And um, that felt just like that vibe Mm. felt familiar of these people sort of like having this sort of that like sort of love to hate you familial thing happening in their workplace, um, watching Rob as a female character, like processing breakups and reflecting on um, the past relationships and where it all went wrong, um, I think is I think the only way to have updated this story and have it work in 2020 would have been to make the kinds of changes that they made to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause going back and watching the film, like going into it, I knew this is a movie about white guys that work in a record store and they have like snobby ideas about what's good or not. And they spend a lot of time listing the top five, whatever's like that's would have been my elevator pitch about mm-hmm. what high fidelity was about beforehand. And, you know, it's a nice sort of like, cultural piece from 2000 from the year 2000 about like where we were in our culture at the time and it also then doesn't age terribly well i think through 2020 eyes no you know through um a a whiny white guy like basically kind of stalking the woman who moves out and ends their relationship and then going back and sort of demanding time from these other women that he's had breakups with to try to figure out what went wrong there. And there's just a lot of like, he feels very sorry for himself. And it's like, you know, maybe Rob should go to therapy. <laughs> I think that's a problem for both Robs, actually. I, you know, yeah, no, I think that's Robs, true. It's kind of like, get over and, yourself. I don't know. I was expecting Zoe Kravitz to be a little more sympathetic than the Rob of the movie. And I'm not sure that she was actually, which is maybe kind of the point, right? Like the yeah. flaw, you know, the, the flaws coming from inside the relationship. Right. Um, yeah. Situation. I think you're, I, I think that's a good point. Like you're, I think you are supposed to be able to see and understand why people keep breaking up mm-hmm. with these people, um, with this Rob character, whether in the, the, um, movie or the TV show. And I just felt, I felt it more strongly about Cusack than I did mm-hmm. about, Zoe Kravitz and some of it too is just like the the way that we talk about gender stuff has yeah. really shifted and so there was um 
like there's some sort of forceful flirting stuff. There's some sexualization that happens um, with kids in the movie, like, you know, younger kids and the way that um, they're talking about puberty. And there was just a lot of like, it, it felt like watching white guy wish fulfillment, like when Rob is reflecting on his uh, greatest relationships. And the and one of them is Catherine Zeta-Jones. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm totally outclassed. We were together for a year and I never got comfortable. And it was like, in what world does this actually happen other than like the daydream of the white guy writing the story? Mm. <laughs> so I just was, it, it felt like it kind of exactly what I was expecting it to be um tim robbins was the highlight for me yes he's hilarious he's so <laughs> funny in that role yeah just such a like groovy dude uh and then lisa bonet appearing <laughs> as the as the musician that they're all the engine with you know, the, yeah interesting right yeah. and i was like wait hold on so now i need the google that i didn't have time to do before this was like how did this whole thing occur because you know lisa bonet is zoe kravitz's mother and how did we get from Lisa Bonet being like the ingenue of the movie to her daughter starring mm. as, you know, the protagonist of the film? Um, I just have questions, yeah. <laughs> but it was, that was really, it was fun to watch. I'm glad that I've seen it. I'm glad they took some things out, like in the movie, um, the reason, one of the driving reasons that Rob and uh, the most recent girlfriend i can't remember her name have broken up is that there were problems in the relationship but in in the course of one of those moments of not good stuff happening between them she had discovered that she was pregnant and she had an abortion without telling him Mm -hmm. because she was seeing that she wasn't going to stay with this guy forever and didn't want to have a kid with him and he finds out and they have a whole big fight around it and i was like "Ooh, this you know this is a storyline that does not age well Mm -hmm. and i'm glad that they you know very uh, wisely took it out for the show. Yeah. I mean, the 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 problem with having seen the movie, I mean, anytime you do something like this, you tend to like the thing you saw first, the best. Um, I totally agree that the content stuff, if you could tweak the script, you know, you would, but you can't, and it's an artifact mm-hmm. of its time in its own right. way. The standout, for, I mean, the, the thing that's hard to remember now is like, in the movie, this was sort of like Jack Black before anyone knew who Jack Black was. And he's like, mm. he's incendiary. Like every moment he's on the screen, it's a, the Jack Black show, um, which is a lot of fun. And I think um, in the TV series, Divine Joy Randolph, who plays Sharice, who kind of subs out for the, you know, that's the character mm-hmm. in that, I think is having a hard time in that shadow, like what to do with that space that it's like following Robin Williams on a stand-up show in that particular mm-hmm. role. He almost wanted to go a different direction to some degree. And I thought Rob, as much as he is a jerk, a lot of times, like the manic energy, I think for a movie plays better where Zoe Kravitz is such a mood in the TV show that doesn't tend to modulate somewhat. And, and speaking of there's something to her being so beautiful and yet being sort of this loser nerd that runs a record store that sort of didn't sit right with me. It's like, wait a mm. minute, this is Zoe Kravitz. <laughs> like, <laughs> she can't be outclassed in any relation. No one's dumping Zoe Kravitz. I mean, or, you know, like, that, theoretically, like, that was just a little bit harder to, to buy uh, in a certain sense. Now, if you forget the movie and you look at it in its own terms... I think her own coolness then becomes a subject. Why is she so quote unquote cool? And what are the vectors of cool um, for good or for ill that's affecting her? Like what's her deal Uh, to some degree, fear of commitment, other things like that. Um, I think that the movie of course is tighter and it's much more focused around the conceit of the 
top five relationships and then the mm-hmm. the the debrief right the the post hoc debrief that you're going back in time where in the in the TV show you don't get that for quite a while like you go multiple multiple episodes and it's almost an afterthought right you don't mm-hmm. care so much about Zoe Kravitz going back I'm sorry Rob played Robin aka <laughs> Rob Brooks played by Zoe Kravitz going back to her relationships by that time because I think you're more interested in her future history right her relationship yeah. with her friends her relationship with her family um, her brother is really great in that relationship too. You just, I didn't want to go back, and so it felt like a real detour to like, oh, we've got to do the high fidelity thing at this point, like on episode four oh, or whenever it is. Um, so I, I was like, I don't really want this. And then you know, a lot of the beats and lines are the same. So I'm like, okay, there's the beat, mm-hmm. there's the line, and that's great. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to get a season two, so we don't get some of the wonderful spoiler stuff. Spoiler, I should say now, um, where uh, Charisse, you know, who gets the guitar. Doesn't is not going to get her Jack Black moment of um, performing "Let's Get It On," which is one of the mm-hmm. one of the great movie cover performances yeah. of all time. Um, that, unfortunately, we're not going to get that. I don't think that moment was such a great surprise at the end of the movie of like, oh right, because I spent most of the movie like Bob was watching or kind of like half watching while I was um, viewing over the weekend, and I spent half of that of the movie being like, oh my god, I'm so glad that Jack Black is like not a big thing anymore because I found that character to be really annoying, mm. but it did give me a framework for what Sharice was supposed to be mm-hmm. in in the TV show. And I agree, like, I didn't quite know what to make of her when I first watched the show and then going back to the movie and seeing Jack Black and being like, oh, she's trying to map onto this character and this is where the story is ultimately going. But I thought they both captured really well that, like, sort of burning desire to do the thing and the like that deep we all I think we've all met people like this Mm -hmm. who are like I'm gonna do this thing and I'm gonna be so amazing at it and I just need everybody to believe in me even though like I've I can not even play one chord on the guitar yet (laughs) (laughs) and there that um Rob pushes Sharice about it a little bit more in the show about like when are you gonna do the thing Uh, then we get to see in the movie I do wish that we got to see Devine Joy Randolph do a Marvin Gaye cover yeah, <laughs> that would that would be amazing. I it, I feel like the um, the TV show goes a little bit more towards getting at some of the identity stuff, like the the way that what you the music that you're into stands in or represents stuff about personality than the movie has time to go into just mm-hmm. because you know you get eight hours on Hulu. But there's a quote they carry through in both of them about how. Rob's on a date with somebody and they're talking about like the things you like are more important than what you are like. And that's not a sentiment that I agree with, but I think that sentiment explains a lot of the neurosis that we see with those characters and that trying to pull that out that I I kind of think that's fundamentally the issue that the show and the movie are both are about is like, look at the, these people that are so defined by like, here in this case it's music and they see everyone else through the lens of that as well and what would happen if they could get out of like this is my taste and this is what makes me cool um or what makes me the alpha nerd and into like actually being a person mm-hmm. <laughs> like because i i think you know the the grown-up answer is it matters a lot more what you're like than what you like um but all these characters that are in that place of believing, you know, we need to have the same music taste in common, or I, th- I need to be able to respect your music taste. Um, it's interesting. And the guy that 
Rob goes on the date with in the first episode of the Hulu series. I think that was a really nice play on that yeah. trope where um, she's playing a saw, a Fleetwood Mac song, and he's like, what are you going to do if I tell you I don't actually like Fleetwood Mac or that I don't know enough about it? Are you going to are you going to leave? Are you going to dump me? And he's joking, but he's like, not fully joking because he knows this is actually possible with a person like this, that she just might decide his taste isn't good enough or yeah. isn't right and, and bail I out. I thought that dynamic it was is totally lacking in the in the movie. I think his name is Clyde, right? Played by Jake Lacey, mm-hmm. who's really great. Like he's he he's cast to be a well meaning, attractive, totally square white dude, right? Like that's yep. his role there. And with all of the connotations therein of squareness, but also privilege and also power and also competency, but also a deep, a deep uncoolness that is fascinating. And, and I totally agree with you that I think you can, the, this, the idea that carries through that gets up, the, everything around it has to get updated around the gender and the race and sexual mm-hmm. politics and everything else. Everything else has to get updated for the TV series. But the thing that remains the same, because I think it is at core is, what is it that these people care about so much when it comes to music? And I think you can map the same kind of things onto books, right? We talk about this all the time mm-hmm. in some degree, right? Like, it, what is it doing for them that's productive, but then also what is hindering them by putting this, you know, I don't even think it's almost, I think fetishization, right? We're, we're, we're looking at the yeah. records and you're stealing one particular record that's a variant of a Bowie cover or whatever because it has one typo in the bottom left-hand corner. <laughs> like, you know, there's ways you go down, and that becomes the Holy Grail. Um, and interesting, the Holy Grail itself is an empty vessel, right? And it's just an empty vessel of something to put a care. You're trying to find something to care about. They have no morals. They have no philosophy. They have seemingly no political or ethical or, you know, familial, any kind of desire outside of which is this which is the best Marvin Gaye cut or which is the best B side of the clash. And that's not a thing, right? That is not a thing. I think what they're all discovering, that is not a thing to build a life around, but it's something you can throw your attention at and Mm -hmm. mistaking those two things. I think frankly, that's a very, very, very tempting trap for a certain kind of person. And I have been that person, especially if in a high school kind of person, you're looking for identity. Mm -hmm. You don't know who, what kind of person you want to be. You don't know what's available, what available mental models of how to be in the world are. And so what's available to you is pop culture, right? And then, well, I can't do the pop culture, pop culture. Then I'm like everybody else. So I've got to differentiate and I differentiate about going. So I like vinyl records of punk bands from the seventies, right? So I'm, I am more interesting because my interests are more specific, right? Those two things get aligned. And I think they find that it ultimately becomes, that's not worth living for. Right? It's not worth right. living for. That is not a way to live. And I think that's super interesting and sort of sad about, I think you get that resolution in the movie to some degree, right? Rob kind of, you know, mm-hmm. for better or worse, the resolution of that is he realizes his own flaws and how to make a relationship or that, that the relationship is the important thing and everything else is garbage. Um, and, and Jack Black kind of gets away from transferring and deflecting evaluations of his talent to put himself out there and put himself on stage. Because in the movie, it's hard to remember now, if you went to see this movie whenever it was come out, you didn't know Jack Black was going to blow the roof off doing that at the end. Yeah. You didn't know he was going to be any good, just like Rob <laughs> doesn't know if he's... They're, they're going in there cringing. They're going there waiting to look through their eyes and watch a train wreck, and he's unbelievable. Um, so that turn towards the away from the vinyl towards something else and what that mm-hmm. turning toward is toward 
I'm, I'm, that's the great sadness of the miniseries getting yeah. yanked because we were just starting to make that turn. They were starting to turn towards each other, toward turns the, the, the thing that is the art and why you make the art towards relationships, mm-hmm. towards other people. Um, anyway, so I guess that's that. that. That's kind of the diagnosis, right? Like it's a high school, <laughs> it's, a, it's a cool high school kid movie about mm-hmm. the insufficiency of being a cool high school kid. Well, yeah, or about the insufficiency of being a cool high school kid in your late 20s. Or the insufficiency you know? <laughs> of coolness writ large, I guess. You know, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that too. Like, it felt the way that they approach music feels very much like what we see, like, in the comics world, where it's like, yeah. oh, you like comics? Name five Robins. Yeah, right, you name know, five like, ro- name That's, five. <laughs> like, name five Robins is the comic book equivalent of, like, well, do you know which Bowie album mm-hmm. has the typo on the cover? And it it did also have me thinking, I'm glad you mentioned that people use books as this for this as well, because it had me thinking about that theoretical book-based dating app we've been talking yeah, about right. on, yeah. the, on the last couple episodes. And that the idea that what you are like matters more than what you like, I think is um, actually the core of why I'm like, why would I care about a book-based mm-hmm. dating app? Like, tell me who the person is. Um, it was really interesting. But I'm I'm glad that I watched the movie second because I did get to be totally surprised by that ending with Jack Black. Because yeah, right. I just didn't, I didn't see it coming either. I was ready for it to be totally cringeworthy. And I'm still ready in the like mm-hmm. alternate reality where we have a second season of the Hulu show. I'm still ready to see Sharice do that. But it's got to be like, maybe it'll be the Lauren Hill version of Can't Keep My Eyes Off of You. Mm-hmm. Um can't take my eyes off of you, um, which is better than the Frankie Valley version. Yeah, that is definitely true. <laughs> um, let's see. Anything else to say about that? Yeah, I'm, I would have watched a second season for sure. I, I don't think there's any mm-hmm. doubt about that. I think largely because I wanted to see the glow up um, from Sharice, but also it, will, it would have exceeded then the terrain of the movie in a lot of ways. Like it, Rob's relationship arc it was looked like it was trending towards a different situation than it was in the movie. Cause in the, in the movie it's to a return to one of the exes, right? Mm-hmm. Where I don't think that's where the mini series was going again, spoiler. And it felt like there was undiscovered territory for these characters and these ideas. Like what is next? Right. Um, the, 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 the big ad for me, like I said, was um, Rob's brother and his yeah. little family unit and having like a one night kind of room spring up party before yeah. the baby comes. <laughs> Because um, that is something I've seen. Fun Rob. Fun Rob. Yeah. That is something I've seen up close for people who feel like they're exiting the fun part of their life, whether they're going to mm. get married or getting a job or they're going to have a baby or whatever. There is a real reticence to let go of that arrested development stage of doing coke and listening to vinyl, you know, and getting egg sandwiches <laughs> at two in the afternoon on Sundays. It's a good time, but it's a good time for a time. Um, and to see that. You know, that that threshold, there's a thresholdness, right? You're on the threshold of something and you haven't been able to reinvest your care into something other than these things that you've known, um, these superficial tokens mm-hmm. of meaning, that it's a leap towards re, re-infusing, re- redirecting that care um, into something else. So it did feel like the very elegaic at the end of the series where you felt like the next season was going to be more mature than the first season yeah. and more mature than the original source material. So that's what's a, that was the biggest bummer to me about, about the whole series, I have to say. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I loved the line from the movie, what came first, the music or the misery? Yeah. 
<laughs> and I felt like there's a lot of material there that they could have taken. And mm. I now also think that we should rebrand bachelor parties as one night rum spring. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's do a sponsor and we'll, we'll turn our attention to something else. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. I think maybe let's go to Little Fires Everywhere just because I'm thinking about um, we don't really have any character orthogonal directions, but I think we do with Little Fires Everywhere because interestingly, Little Fires Everywhere is set in the late 90s, around the same time that we would have seen some of these characters in the movie, right? So Izzy, mm -hmm. who is the, the bad daughter, has like Ramon's posters in her room and stuff like that. So very much the sort of goth artist you could see her working at Championship Vinyl, right, totally. in about two years. And I think that kind of counter-programming, counter in one way, Izzy's representation of an alt-identity wearing chokers and she's going to go beyond Reality Bites or something like this, represents <laughs> to that world of Shaker Heights in Cleveland, like a real rebellion. In the context mm -hmm. of Championship Vinyl, it just seems sad and pathetic. So it's so interesting to see that same... That same uh, figure uh, cast as genuinely disruptive to a community versus sort of, you know, nothing, you know, and just sort yeah. of a dead end, right? <laughs> a, a life dead end. Um, I have not read the book and I only watched one episode. Um, okay. 
Why don't you start? What's what's your take on Little Fires Everywhere? Spoilers, I guess, if you don't want spoilers. Yeah, well... Don't get the hither. So I did watch the whole yeah. series, but I watched it uh, several months back. Um, and I think that I, I liked the book. I have really appreciated both of Celestine's books. But I think this is one of those cases where the TV show is actually better mm. than the book. And it's a very good book. So, like, do both in your life. Um, but there were... There's just some really sharp commentary that comes across as very sharp um, through TV that is a little subtler, I think, in the book. And they make some important changes for the TV series. Like the Carrie Washington character in the show is a white woman in the book. Mm. Um, So having her be a black woman who is a single mother and is an artist who moves from town to town and is protecting a really big secret with her daughter. And they're trying to fit into this new place that's very planned and pristine and where everything can and should be planned to avoid uncertainty and disaster like is a adds a real extra couple of dimensions to the mm-hmm. dynamics that happen between those characters and especially Reese Witherspoon's character and her fa- her uh, family and I th- just thought that was so smart on the part of the showrunners to make that change and to like really explore what outsiderness in a town like that meant from a couple different angles because in the book they're outsiders but they're white people and they're just trying to fit in and Izzy is the real outsider character um but through making Carrie making Mia Warren um making that character be a black woman for the show we get to see outsiderness in this very insular community through a couple different lenses and a few different characters experiences and I think it really hangs a lantern very effectively on how insidious these ways of life can be that are not necessarily conservative but that are very traditional and a lot of the harm that's caused by people who mean well but really want to think of themselves as good people more than they want to actually be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to go back. Can we, can I ask why you kind of hinted at the beginning of the show that this was one you probably wouldn't have gotten to. Can I ask what's going on there? You know, I guess over time I've become now, I'm sure I have more to learn. There's insights in there for me to find. And I think I was proven right and wrong by watching the first episode the Reese Witherspoon character here, I feel like this is territory I've I've seen a bunch of times. Now, the mm-hmm. Carrie Washington and her daughter add a charge, right? It's a different vibe than you get. But like Annette Bedding in American Beauty is like this it's like I've seen this char- I know I know this character, right? I, I feel like I know mm-hmm. that character. And it's hard for me to see what critiques or expansions or complications or nuances can be added to that character. That's going to tell me something I don't know. And part of that is I didn't grow up in an affluent as community as Shaker, this place, but I know these people. Like I was mm. 19, you know, this is 97. Um, yeah. I'm the son of a doctor in a college town, mostly white people. Like the pro- shouts to the production design, by the way, for the puka shell yeah. necklaces and the clothes <laughs> and the cars and the yeah. bikes. And so I think in that regard, it did a lot of really good work, but like, I grew up kind of here Mm, and I just mm -hmm. wasn't sure. I just wasn't sure what I had to learn. Right. I wasn't really, I really wasn't surprised by anything in the episode. I'm not saying it was bad, but I just, 
I'm not sure what I was going to get out of it that I wanted. And the only the thing I would be interested in, and maybe it's enough to get me to watch the rest. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I just watched it two days ago, and I'm still thinking about it. Is Carrie Washington and um, uh, Jade? I'm sorry, what's her name? Uh, Pearl's the uh, Lexi Underwood. Lexi Underwood. So Mia Warren and the me and Pearl. Um, I would have spent more time with them. The 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 Richardsons, right? Or I mean the O'Neills. Mm-hmm. I mean the Richardsons. Um, <laughs> you know, been there, done that. You know, I know their flaws uh, intimately uh, every day. Uh, so I guess does that make sense, Rebecca? I'm not sure if that's yeah. Fair or not. No. It does. I mean, that does make sense. Um, I was 15 in 1997 and I... You're Izzy. You're Izzy. She's 14. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was not that cool. Mm. (laughs) Well, but you're of that age. But yeah, I'm that that's the right age. Um, the soundtrack like really resonated mm-hmm. with me. And Counting Crows, I shot. I was like, oh, they got Rebecca yeah. from the beginning of the Counting Crows, like the first music hit is Counting Crows. Oh, man, I almost texted you when that <laughs> happened. Uh, I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, of course, they're playing Rain King. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I knew those people, too. But my I think um that I my like upbringing was sort of like solidly middle class. And so I did not know the Richardsons. Like, I think I knew who they were, mm-hmm. or who the Richardson kids in my school would have been. Um, but they were those weren't I wasn't friends with them. I wasn't invited to their houses. And so I didn't quite have a sense of like, what yeah. was going yeah. on and in, in these families and around their dinner tables. Um, but a lot of the teenagerness of the show, I thought is was done overall really well and like down to they're watching the real world yeah. and they're trying to talk Not to San each Francisco, other about Francisco Boston because it's still it's uncool yeah. at this point because you're already past where it was hip to watch real world right like <laughs> you're a suburban Cleveland kid watching real world at this point yeah, yeah. and um which like yeah i was also not cool Mm -hmm. in 1997 so like when that boston episode of the real world shows up on screen and little fires everywhere i was like oh i remember those people (laughs) (laughs) but these teenagers like talking to each other and trying to like what explain what aids is to each other because that's what was happening in 1997 and making sense of like as the season goes on there are um a a lot of instances of uh, like racism that the characters don't realize is racism at the time. And that's stuff that you don't get in the book since all the characters are, um, are white there in shaker. And I think that I agree with you about the Reese Witherspoon character, but I feel like that is intentional that like we get that opening montage where like her calendar is color coded on the fridge and she won't say the word vagina when they're talking about the vagina monologues and she'll only have sex with her husband on Wednesdays and Saturdays because it's more fun when we plan it like that all of that really regimented stuff is supposed to just tell us like all all these uh, tropes you have in your mind about who this woman is, they're exactly right. And then the impact of that spins out in unpredictable and I think more dangerous ways than the first episode mm-hmm. hints at. Yeah, it was. she's such a character. She's a caricature of that kind of a yeah. character. And I was like, yeah, I'm not, I didn't feel subtle. I didn't feel interesting. It felt like we're starting from a place of, you know, it wasn't even satire. It was yeah, it really was an exaggeration to make a point. Um, and I think it's interesting to play with it. I think for me, to really set the hook, I needed to be played with quicker 
mm-hmm. in the first episode because it's not it's it's just not played with quicker um at all at all and I think they do some I think it's true to life about how a character like that would have experienced seeing someone they thought was a homeless black couple you know mother daughter I think that's very mm-hmm. true to life but you know I don't need to be told that <laughs> I don't need to be told that like I, I should be clear like this wasn't my life either but I went to these people's houses like I didn't have a pager yeah. in high school but I knew kids who did my my dad didn't drive a Lex or a Range Rover or a Lexus whatever but I had I went to they weren't even my friends but like you would go to their house because that's where the party was because they were mm-hmm. the most disaffected teens because their own parents were so unhappy and Josh Jackson there in his tidy whities and um <laughs> I mean it's so 90s that Josh Jackson and Reese Witherspoon are in it it's that that's how 90s <laughs> it was I was it's like very meta like they're playing it's, their own parents that they would have, they would have yeah. played their own parents at this point in the nineties. Um, for them. It's such an interesting swing for Joshua Jackson too. like the most recent thing that I watched him in was the affair on Showtime. Mm. And that's a pretty edgy, like dark character and watching him go from that into basically like Pacey 2.0. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was, was really interesting for the show. I think that's a great point that you needed the hook to be set sooner. Mm. And, I'm asking myself now if I didn't sort of know what the bigger mysteries of the story are, um, how I would have reacted to this first episode. And I I think that's totally I think it's a great criticism that we don't really leave this first episode knowing um, really what the big questions of the season are going to be like it opens with the house is on fire and with Elena, you know, presumably blaming Izzy for it. And that's going to be one of the big focuses. Mm -hmm. But like, why do Mia and Pearl and I'm kind of spoiling things here, but like, there's a there's a bigger reason that Mia and Pearl move around a lot that that doesn't have anything to do with her art. And Elena becomes obsessed with figuring that out. And some hints of some of those things are making those a little bit more overt in this first episode probably would um, have grabbed yeah. viewers like you who don't know what's coming more effectively. I'd be super interested listeners. Like what do you think if you've watched the first one or will you watch the first one and, and let us know? I do think format though matters there because I don't think that show is meant for me to watch one episode and then wait a week for the next. Ep- I, I think, mm, you know, the mm-hmm. next episode, 15, 14, 13, 12, I'm supposed to yeah. go right into it. Right. So I don't, yeah. the, the setting, the hook is the opening 90 seconds, right. Of the, the mm-hmm. house catching on fire. And then the, we think it's Izzy, which okay, clearly means it wasn't her. Like we, I've read the Agatha Christie book. I know how this works. Um, <laughs> and then, and then you get this. Then you go back four months earlier, and you see the setup that what gets you that point. But we end so far away from that point at the end of that first episode. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, I guess we see. It could be any of these characters. Yeah, I get. I don't know. It just felt. I think it was well done. I think. If my words, if I wasn't so time constrained, I definitely would keep watching it. But I think the bar for me for another seven hours is so high mm-hmm. now that's like, okay, rich people in the nineties, yeah, you, you know, know, okay, Jesus, I've done this before. I, yeah, I think yeah. that's that's real, and I'm realizing like that the thing that drove me to watch the series was that I knew what happened roughly in the book, and I knew that. Carrie Washington playing this character was going to make the story different and interesting. And I probably would not have watched it if it had been like Reese Witherspoon and like, I don't, Katie Holmes. Yeah, shows right. Up right. As, yeah, yeah. Michelle <laughs> Williams. Let's really Dawson it up. We'll get Michelle Williams right. and Katie Holmes in this thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't think that I would have felt as compelled to watch the series if it had been that because 
they're like, okay, I know the story. Mm -hmm. And it's a mystery story. And like, I don't need to watch a mystery adaptation where I already know the answer. Um, But the changes that they made to the characters are what made it interesting for me. I think if the, I think if the pilot was centered on Carrie, uh, me and Pearl through their Mm -hmm. eyes, more of, more of them's really centered on Reese Witherspoon for, I think for reasons that make sense. And I don't know how the book is, but if it was really told through their eyes, I think I would have been much more interested because their vibe is interesting. Their dynamic is super fascinating, much more complicated than Reese Witherspoon's with any of her children or her husband, for that matter. Um, really being outsiders and they have an agenda, clearly. There was a lot more interest. There are a lot more hooks there in terms of question. You know, a question mark is just an inverted hook, right? Like, I think there's a lot more there for me to grab onto. But I felt like coming out of the first episode that it's going to be me watching Reese do Reese Witherspoon, you know, privileged white lady stuff. I'm like, I just, you know... Uh, not, 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 I have, I get that, you know, I, I get that. And I, there's other places I can go for that. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. There's title. not a small amount of Reese Witherspoon doing that here. And so. no, no shade. I think she's great at it. I think <laughs> she, is. I think she, the, the weight of Reese is really important for what that character is doing and what she's doing with it. Mm-hmm. But I even think that is kind of weirdly obvious, weirdly for Reese Witherspoon to play a role like that at this point. I don't, I don't know. There's something about it. Like I needed a real surprise. Like at the end, again, spoiler. Like this Wednesday, Saturday sex stuff, and at the end, she really actually. You, you feel like she's going to be cold, right? And the surprise is actually she sort of likes sex, which I don't know feels a little bit underwhelming. Like I needed her to be like a dom or something. Like she needed to come out of there with like a whip. <laughs> Or like, you know, I, I don't know, like I really needed to like, oh shit, kind of a moment. But Only really on wasn't Wednesdays that. and Saturdays, but I'll really make it worth your while. Yeah, or, or like yeah. that was like that, the, the control thing was part of it, right? Like that was become like a fetish mm-hmm. kind of a situation where it's sexualized and it's not just putting him off to put him off or because I have a headache or whatever. To stick to the schedule. Yeah, it's really yeah. about like control, you know, um, mm-hmm. and it almost does that, but I just, give me, you got you to gotta punch up the flavor. Um, for me if we're, we're dealing with whiteness of this uh, thoroughgoingness. Um, all right, let's take one more break and then talk about Anola Holmes. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. 
These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. I think this was the real surprise for me. I mean, it's hard to get out of the the actual experience of it. It's pitched completely differently. The vibe is completely different. Um, My family and I sat down to watch this together and just had a rip-roaring good time. I don't know what else to say Mm -hmm. about it. I'm curious, without kids sitting around, would you have watched this on your own? Would you have enjoyed it on your own on its own terms? Because it's not really for, quote unquote, us, I think. I think that's one yeah. thing to say about Enola Holmes. It's not good or bad. It's just a different audience and has a different yeah, kind I of sensibility. would not have watched it on my yeah. own or like if I wasn't, if I didn't have, you know, kids around that I was watching it with. And Bob was very confused <laughs> when I put it on. Like, I think he was kind of not paying attention. And then 20 minutes in, he was like, what is this? Mm. And why are you like, this is not your usual jam but i was completely delighted by it it was a lovely way i watched it friday afternoon and it was a lovely or maybe thursday it was a lovely way to spend a couple of hours you know at the end of the work day just unwinding and watching something that was purely delightful like the in the opening sequence where millie bobby brown as enola holmes is like putting together puzzles with her mom and helena bonham carter like talk about an actress who has nailed the kind of part that she should play like she and reese witherspoon have that in common um but watching her and millie bobby brown like fencing and wrestling and learning puzzles together my notes say this is like a victorian gilmore girls meets the da vinci it really is there's a lot there is there's an element to that Right. I think I had a similar vibe that if you like that mother daughter, maybe too close for comfort kind of relationship. <laughs> right. Um, I guess back to me and Pearl a little bit, too, for that matter. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's it it kind of floats along. It's great. It was a lot of fun. I think I would have enjoyed it by myself, um, frankly, without, without oh, yeah. without the kids. I think I would have enjoyed it. I just wouldn't have gotten to it. Like I would not have turned it on to watch by myself. Um, I loved how like it's just overtly feminist down to the way that it talks about feminism. And I didn't see anything like that on the screen when I was a kid, Um, including like that they make it into a joke. Like there's a moment where Mycroft is like, oh, good God, feminism. Right. (laughs) Yes. And the books, (laughs) right? They got Mary Wollstonecraft on the shelves and it's banned. Yeah. it's really, you know, the way you can do it, knowing that it wouldn't have been this way, right? It's a fantasy right. of this kind of a thing, which is fine. It's just, that's what it is. Yeah. And this sort of fundamental, they get at this fundamental tension that exists between, that everybody can relate to, I think, that exists between trying to fit into society yeah. and trying to be happy. Yeah. And Millie Bobby Brown, Enola's mother, Mrs. Holmes, uh, she she just says it explicitly, you know, like, don't worry about trying to fit in, just do you and be happy. And that's such a, 
powerful thing to say to a young girl character and a really powerful thing for young girl characters to see on the screen, I think. And, um, you know, I texted Amanda when I got to the spot where um, Enola is in London and she's like, I'm going to disguise myself as something they've never expected, a lady, (laughs) you know, and she gets the big skirts and she's putting on a like bustier situation. And I was texting Amanda like, you know, it's really lovely to see a 16 year old girl portrayed as a girl Mm. and not as this like sexualized woman character yet and i thought they balanced that really well with like there's a little romantic intrigue Mm -hmm. she meets the marquess of basil weather but it's it's not about it being a romance it's not about enola being cute or sexy in any way Um, and that millie bobby brown is like totally in on the joke too like she she gives such good face she knows that she's playing with tropes here and i was just i was just terribly delighted by all of it yeah it was i mean no no smart part of my delight was knowing that my seven-year-old daughter was down on the you know was two two cushions away um Mm -hmm. who she is a curious feisty uh smart girl to see the hero be curious feisty smart um and connected right i mean one of the great one of the great ads of the holmes idea right you know we've talked a lot of times about you know we don't think of adaptations as as necessarily diminishing their thing itself Mm -hmm. i think holmes is the best example in all of culture about getting something out into the air and letting people play and seeing what comes yeah. out of it. Because you come into the movie thinking Enola is going to be kind of diet Sherlock, right? Well, she's 16 year old. <laughs> she, she can't be, he's Superman. Literally he's Superman, Henry Cavill, who has played Superman, <laughs> right? So she can't be that. But then you realize that Enola is, whether or not she's as good a detective as him is beside the point. She's happier than him. She's happier mm-hmm. than Sherlock. He just is, you know, again, th- it's crazy that there was a lawsuit about how much emotion Sherlock had in this because he has like <laughs> the barest glimmer of fellow feeling <laughs> and like, oh, sue over that. Um, but there there was the connectedness, right? The connected of the people to mm-hmm. her mother, um, to the the count, or not the, the Marquez, and then to the people she encounters along the way. Her open heartedness is what separates mm-hmm. her from Sherlock. And, you know, my daughter, she's also very open-hearted in seeing it's not about being like Black Widow or like kind of a, right. a ninja stealth assassin capable, like uber capable femme fatale that you can be, you can have friends. You can be interested in romance. You can also be, you can wear dresses and like them, but also not if you don't want to. You can do what do what you want is enough to differentiate mm-hmm. yourself from other people. And that is its own kind of, of liberation. And then the whole, the meta structure about being, about the passing of the reform bill and the expansion of the franchise. And there was a darkness underneath too. We still don't know mm-hmm. what Helena Bonham Carter was really up to with all these explosives and what they were really doing. <laughs> so there's some hooks there for future ones. Uh, I think I said to you, if there were five more of those movies available on Netflix, we would have watched them all like almost in a row. Like just right yeah. there, we just would have powered through immediately. Yep. 
And I will watch whatever the future ones are happily yeah. on my own now that I know that this is what it is. Um, I texted a friend who has daughters that are nine and 11 and was like, if you all have not watched this yet, like Enola Holmes is the flavor for mm-hmm. your household. And her response was like, oh, girl, like we've watched it three times already. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can, I can every, imagine that. So were yeah, we right? Like was Cavill, was Cavill the, the, the biggest thirst trap Sherlock we've seen? I mean, they play it up, too. I think they also he's in on the joke about how Sherlock yes. is this thing. Right. It's sex object. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think he's, he's in on the joke. Um, I mean, Henry Cavill works for me more than Benedict Cumberbatch. So I don't know. That's where I'm landing on it. Um, I think other highlights, I loved Susan Wacoma playing Edith and she has this great moment when Sherlock goes to visit her and she says, you have no interest in changing a world that suits you so Mm. well. And, And that was my like, you know, hands in the air, preach it kind of moment with this was there's so much here that like I would have loved to be to have a movie like this or have stories like this when I was a kid like I am 37 years old and I feel validated watching a character watching a woman character talking to a man like this on screen or even Mm. Enola looking at the Marquess later and going you're a man when I tell you you're a man (laughs) you know (laughs) like there's it's so um the feminism is overt and it's also taken as read that like of course this is how this character is of course it's reasonable that women want the franchise and of course it's reasonable that edith is pushing back on sherlock and challenging him to not stay comfortable and it's a total fantasy those conversations are probably not happening very widely in victorian london at the time but watching these characters do that and watching this 16 year old girl discover that these things her mother taught her that if you just try to please yourself and be happy and live into that like that's the way to go watching her discover that it's real and true and that you can be um you know like there's more than one way to be a superhero Mm -hmm. i loved what you were saying about like it doesn't have to be this uber competent assassin you know like in black leather to take over the world that like you can also be a spunky 16 year old who wants to be a lady detective and solve a mystery and just stand up for what's right and that's like that level of nuance and of variety in female characters for kids to grow up seeing kids of all genders to grow up seeing matters so much Mm. and i'm just so so happy to see it being done this well yeah and it you know the sherlock holmes as a figure of like the post-enlightenment ubermensch right has ultimate control over reason, knowledge, and himself, right? It's kind of mm-hmm. the, the ultimate expression of a certain kind of Victorian ideal of masculinity, right? Of like the unflappable, stiff upper lift. Also, you know, kind of the English Renaissance man figure of like, I'm also an amateur geologist and single stick fighter right. and pugilist. It's kind of played with the beginning. <laughs> like he's the manic pixie dream detective, right? Like impossible <laughs> of in its own... And Enola's all of those things, but the, 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 the pixie dust then is the sense of play that Enola ha- yeah. has that Sherlock also enjoys. And she, she steals one of his lines, um, the famous Sherlock Holmes lines, the game is afoot, and the game being like the play. And Sherlock is only ever allowed, either by the text or himself or whatever, Conan Doyle or whatever, the, the faintest twinkle of the eye that he's enjoying this, right? Anything more mm-hmm. than that would be unseemly. And the unseemliness is on Front Street here because, you know, they, they pull up to the house and it's gone to seed and they see it as, or at least Sam Claflin or Mycroft sees it as 
a travesty. Sherlock thinks of it as like mildly interesting, and then Enola looks at it as like it's a playground, right? And those you sort of you know better encapsulation of the three different lenses being looked through side by side, and clearly the privileging the one of unconventionality and play feels to me like a real new thing in the world for Sherlock Holmes, but also for representations of competence. Because it's not just mm-hmm. saying it's girly, like, you know, it's not tea parties and like feminized and ghettoized in that way. Like play itself is instructive and worth doing for its own sake, whether or not you can figure out the clues in the chrysanthemum. Fun is fun and fun is good. And that's good. And that's okay. And mm-hmm. that part of it is... I was afraid that the the figure of Sherlock would so be the thing Nola was being measured against the whole time that I was a little worried about it, frankly, like that she was going to be seen as Robin, right? This is the story of Mm -hmm. Robin, which maybe you need the story of Robin, but then the Batman is the real McCoy. But I think coming out of the end of this, you're like, I want to see a movie with Nola. If you're giving me a movie that centers on this Sherlock or really any Sherlock or Nola, I'm picking Nola 10 out of 10 at this point. Yeah. I've, you know, like, I'm pretty sure I've never read a Sherlock Holmes story, or maybe I read one like in high school, but I've never sat down to read Sherlock Holmes on my own. It just wasn't like a thing that appealed. And I think I watched one or two of the episodes of the BBC series with Cumberbatch when everybody was freaking out about that, like to try to get it. And I've just never gotten it. Like Sherlock has just never rung my bells, but I get Enola. And I'm really glad also for for what you're saying that like this character stands on its own, that even if Sherlock, I think, never appeared on screen if we just heard the backstory of like her brother is this famous detective and this how here's how her life has been different from his this character completely stands on her own and is fascinating and fun to watch and i i will watch five more of these. <laughs> yes definitely uh anything else to say about these so i mean they're so different it's hard to say i mean i think probably i enjoyed enola the most um mm-hmm. i think i thought about little fires everywhere the most like that got my processor spinning up and part of it was like why am i not interested in this and ultimately it was like too Mm. close to too close to too close for comfort or too close to feel like there was much to do there and then i think i consumed the most high fidelity and some of it was you know a spin on it's like going to a new pizza place that says we've got a new kind of pizza well i know i like pizza let's see what they do with it right and that's what the high fidelity was um for me how about you rebecca you want to sum up at all yeah i liked i mean i loved enola holmes that was definitely the winner for me um I enjoy Little Fires Everywhere. I was really fascinated by the changes that they made for the show. I thought it it was a solid adaptation. If there's another season of it, I don't know that I'm in. Like the, you know, the big questions from the book are answered in the first season. And High Fidelity, actually, now that I've seen the show and the source material with the movie, I kind of wish that I had seen the movie first Mm. so that I could have had that experience with the show of like, oh, I wonder how they're going to update these things. Or I wonder, you know, what what is Sharice going to do with the Jack Black moment? It was interesting doing it in reverse and seeing the movie and then being Mm -hmm. like, ah, that's what they were mapping onto. But I sort of wish that I had done it in the right 
order, but I was never going to just decide to go watch the High Fidelity movie in order to get to the nah, Zoe Kravitz no, no reason to TV do that, show yeah. if we weren't you doing... You did extra credit if, you know, by going we back and watching episode. the original. I didn't go back and read Little Fires Everywhere. It's a hell of a job. Well, <laughs> I mean, it was you know two hours of extra credit yeah. and I got to have a beer while I was doing it, so it was yeah. fine. How it can be bullshit um, to have an opinion. I, Michelle and I yeah. say that all the time. There's a few lines in High Fidelity that's become part of the lingua franca around uh, here and that's one of them uh, I, that's interesting i loved there's a line in enola holmes that i'll probably hold on to where somebody says she wants to change the world and the response is perhaps it's a world that needs changing mm-hmm. all right show notes bookriot.com slash listen um i guess we'll link to the shows if you can't find them on the internet i don't know how to help you but they'll they'll be you can email us podcast at bookriot.com <sighs> I'm not sure what's going to be the next. What are the next contenders for Adaptation Nation? There's the Good Lord Bird that's out now, though I don't have showtime, so I have to go do a login or something for that. I'm not sure when the Underground Railroad comes out. That's another one I'd be super interested in seeing. Are there any adaptations on your radar, Rebecca, that you know of off the top of your head? Those are the two big ones for me as well. Um, I'm going to have to read the Good Lord Bird first. Oh, it's great. (laughs) Boy, it's amazing. Um, Really amazing stuff. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Thank you.